Hi, I'm Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere, brought to you at a very reasonable price by The Baffler magazine. If you haven't already, you should subscribe at thebaffler.com. Look for the link at the top. It says, subscribe. I want to do a mailbag. Some of you have written to me about the podcast. That's great. Sorry if I haven't written you back yet. If you do write, I might read your email out loud into this microphone, and then after a while, you can listen to me reading what you wrote back to you, and I may even get around to responding at that point. I suppose I should provide an email. How about delete my account at newsfromnowherepodcast.com? That's delete my account at newsfromnowherepodcast.com. Let me know what you think. I want to start with some news that may have been overlooked. This is Greg Hadley's July 2 article for McClatchy News Service. I'm just going to read it. Last week, rumors began to swirl online that left-wing, anti-fascist, Antifa protesters were planning to desecrate graves and monuments and burn Confederate flags at Gettysburg National Military Park in Pennsylvania on Saturday, according to media reports. Despite the local Antifa chapter insisting such rumors were untrue, counter-protesters were quick to mobilize. Four different pro-Confederate groups requested permits from the park to hold their own rallies. But when the day actually came, Antifa wasn't there, and only a few counter-demonstrators showed. As it turned out, there were gunshots fired Saturday, even if there was no violence. According to the Hanover Evening Sun, a 23-year-old man accidentally shot himself in the thigh. The man, Benjamin Hornberger of Shippenburg, Pennsylvania, described himself as a patriot. A National Park Service officer applied a tourniquet that stopped the bleeding and possibly saved Hornberger's life. An ambulance was called, and he was transported to a local hospital. No charges are expected to be filed, as federal law permits handguns and national parks. USA. Later, as park officers were attempting to unload the gun, it fired again, striking the ground and not hurting anyone, according to Live, A park spokesperson described the gun, a revolver, as bad, and said it was difficult to remove rounds from it. Well, here's hoping these Confederate patriots continue to arm themselves and demonstrate the same tactical genius display last week by Benjamin Hornberger of Shippenburg, Pennsylvania. I hope someone gives that man a medal. Okay, on to this week's interview. I was very happy to talk with Adam Hochschild, a former editor at the legendary Ramparts magazine in the 70s, went on to co-found Mother Jones magazine. He is a Penn Award winner. UC Berkeley lecturer, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and all sorts of fancy things like that. Adam is probably most famous for his book about the Belgian atrocities in the Congo, King Leopold's Ghost. His latest book is Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. It was published last year. It's now out in paperback. It's an excellent read, very evocative of the time very much worth your time and relevant today for the reasons that we'll discuss. I, I want to sort of talk about the, the bigger picture, and then we can get into some of the really nice uh, scene setting uh, that you've done in the book and the details of what happened in Spain. But I had a previous guest on this program talk about his view that it's important for the left today to have a positive image of the future and not get sort of bogged down in nostalgia and old arguments, particularly about the Communist Party and what happened to the Soviet Union. Um, I think your book is is something of a counterpoint 
and you write very eloquently about the last tombstone of an American that remains standing in Spain and the last you know American veteran of the Spanish Civil War who died last year, I guess. But I want to ask you, why is it important that we remember Spain? Well, I certainly wouldn't disagree with your guest who said it's important to focus on the future. We are living in a horrible and dangerous time right now, and uh, my hat is off to anybody who has a good strategy for how to cope with it. But uh, I'm a historian. I like to look at the past, and as a writer, I like to try to bring periods in the past alive. And for me, what makes this period so fascinating is that it was the only time that several thousand Americans went off to join someone else's civil war. And they were idealistic, they were naive about some things, like the Soviet Union, but of course they weren't fighting in the Soviet Union, they were fighting in Spain. And I am fascinated by their stories. I think that fascination began for me with knowing a half dozen of those American volunteers, all gone now, all 30 or 40 years older than me. But I think the relevance that it has for today is an indirect one. It's people who felt they were living in a time of crisis, which they were, felt that democratic institutions were under attack, which they were then and they are today, and they did something about it. We don't have an international brigade we can go off and enlist in today, but I think there are similar fights, not military, but organizational and political that have to be waged today. So I wouldn't claim a direct parallel, uh, but I always think you can learn something from looking at history. I want to hit all of the aspects of what you just mentioned, but let's get a better sense of the international brigades, what they were. You wrote, I think, 40,000 enlisted from 50 plus countries, 2,800 Americans, not, including 90 black men. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the prototype of, of the sort of American volunteer in Spain, uh, described as a New Yorker, communist, immigrant, or child of immigrants, working class, uh, Jew. What, what motivated these people to go to Spain? Well, I think the biggest motivation of all was the coming to power of Hitler. And I quote one New York volunteer, Maury Kolau, as saying, for us it was never Franco, it was always Hitler. Hitler had taken power in 1933. Mussolini had already been in power in Italy since the 1920s. Japan, the future ally of those two countries, was uh, rampaging around uh, taking parts of China for itself. And there was a real sense that the world faced a threat of expanding fascism. Most of Central and Eastern Europe, with only a few exceptions like Czechoslovakia, was under military regimes or regimes of the far right that were at least semi-fascist and uh, highly anti-Semitic. And when the Civil War broke out in Spain and that group of extremely right-wing military officers tries to seize power, it was felt as a particular blow by any friend of democracy because this was an elected government that was being overthrown or attempted to, to be overthrown. And people wanted to come to its defense. One of the many tragedies of that era was that the democratic countries, the big ones being Britain, France, and the United States, did not want to get involved in the war in Spain. They didn't want to sell the Spanish Republic arms, which it was desperately asking for and which it had the money to buy. 
And had that happened, I think the threat of Franco and his fellow generals could have been beaten back uh, fairly quickly. Let's talk about that government that they went to defend the Popular Front. Uh, What was it? What did it represent? How did it come to power? Spain was Europe's youngest democracy. Only in 1931 had uh, many centuries of monarchy that had been mixed with a period of military dictatorship in the 1920s come to an end. Uh, 1931, the king left the country. There was a big upheaval. Uh, The first real nationwide free elections were held. And from then on, uh, Spain was, was a democracy. In 1936, there was another national election, and a left liberal coalition, uh, the Popular Front, won that. Uh, Spain was a country of enormous disparities of wealth, a very small elite at the top, a large mass of miserably poor peasantry at the bottom, the highest rate of illiteracy in Western Europe. And the new Popular Front government promised to try to rectify this to make land reform go faster than it has had been going, to take education out of the hands of the Catholic Church. Spain's Catholic hierarchy was by far the most reactionary in Europe and put it under governmental control uh, and be much friendlier to, to labor unions than had been the case in the past. Uh, it was a fractious government, a kind of unstable coalition, uh, and when it took power... In early 1936, there was a lot of pent-up desire for change, and the government was not very good at controlling it. There were riots and demonstrations, and people opened prison doors and let out political prisoners. But this still was a government that had been popularly elected. The nature of the government, of course, was anathema to the right wing in Spain, the big industrialists, uh, the Catholic hierarchy, and uh, the... uh, senior officers in the army who tended to be very right-wing. And then in the summer of 1936, they staged an attempted coup, which they hoped would take over the the whole country quite rapidly. It didn't because there was a huge amount of popular resistance, and that was the beginning of the, the Spanish Civil War. In case there was any doubt about where these attempted coup makers came from and what they stood for, Hitler and Mussolini immediately began sending them large amounts of aid. You write about, or you mention at least, uh, almost in passing, the sort of historian's disagreement about whether Franco is properly described as a fascist, whether, you know, his ensuing dictatorship and the nationalist side in the war was a fascist army. Uh, and, and it mirrors a discussion today about whether we can describe modern movements on the right as fascist or are they merely fascist inspired? Just curious, where do you come down on that? Do you believe that this word fascism is something that should only be used in a narrow historical context? Some even define it only as in Italy. <laughs> uh, or, or do you have to take a broader view? Uh, I would use it narrowly just because it forces you to define things more precisely. I think the reason most people don't want to call Franco a fascist is that the movement that he put together, and it was the only movement allowed in Franco's Spain, was a coalition. One part of it was the Falange Española, the Spanish fascist power party, which used that word. Another part of it was the Catholic Church. Another part of it was a party on the extreme right. 
and then two additional parts of it were ardent monarchists who supported two rival branches of the, the royal family. But they were all on the extreme right politically, and they were close enough to you know, fascism in Nazi Germany and fascism in Italy for Hitler and Mussolini to be very enthusiastic about supporting this regime. You do a good job of describing in, in brushstrokes this sort of society Franco's side wanted to return to. You write about a naturalist general who declared that the Civil War was a war of Western civilization against the Jews of the entire world, and another who blamed modern medicine for the proliferation of the untamed masses as sort of a way to justify the nationalist massacres. You write that they wanted education returned to the churches and imposed female dress codes, had a program of raping uh, communist and anarchist women en masse. And you write about aristocrats hunting peasants on horseback. Can you talk a little more about that? Did that actually happen? It did happen. You know, I think the thing about pre-1930s Spain is that the hatred, and that's the only word to describe it, between classes was more extreme than anywhere else in Europe. You get a touch of that in Latin America even today, and especially in, in recent, you know, more recent decades in Latin America. But it doesn't really parallel anything that Western Europe experienced at that time. You know, there was a sense, you know, that this fairly small ruling elite, the big landowners, owned vast tracts of the country, and they didn't want to lose it. And they had this great hostility to the peasants. They were not interested in the spread of literacy, and I think that's one reason why Spain had the highest illiteracy rate uh, in Western Europe, one of the highest anywhere in Europe. And um, this was an incredibly tense and bitter class conflict that had been simmering along really for centuries, and also in a country where there was a strong tradition of settling things by violence. There were assassinations by the left, there were death squads uh, organized by the right and police, there were upheavals of, of many kinds, labor disputes and elsewhere where lots of people got killed on, on both sides throughout the 20th century up until 1936. Uh, I think one of the miracles is that today Spain is not only a democratic country, but also it's a peaceful country. I've visited and I loved it. Orwell, uh, in his book, Homage to Catalonia, describes the generosity uh, of the Spanish people and, and how deeply uh, it affected him, especially being a, a bitter Englishman, you know, to see that aspect of the culture. But for all those uh, atrocities and reactionary attitudes you described, it was also true that Franco had a lot of support abroad. The Associated Press called him Spain's man of the hour. Why was he seen in that light internationally? Well, I think he was supported by right-wing forces uh, abroad. In Great Britain, for example, which was under a conservative government, conservative both with a, a capital C and a particularly right-wing cabinet in the mid-1930s, British business interests owned a lot in Spain, factories, mining, especially and they were worried that under the popular front government, unions would be empowered and they might lose some of their investments. So the British establishment, you know, was quite happy to see Franco uh, take power. Uh, and actually, some senior British military officers, uh, the commander of the British fortress at Gibraltar, for example, aided Franco with uh, ammunition, letting him use Gibraltar's radio frequencies in the early days of the Civil War 
and things like that. Similarly, France was very bitterly split at this time between left and right with a strong right-wing forces, you know, which we saw in Vichy France uh, later on, the way France crumbled so quickly before the German invasion in 1940. So there were forces in all countries in Europe that supported one side or another in the Civil War. And in the United States, when you describe the sort of atmosphere, this is one of the things I love about the book, describing the atmosphere of the 30s, uh, not just in Europe, but in the U.S. You talk about 5 million Americans going on strike in 1937. Uh, at the same time, there were like 16 million listeners of Father Coughlin. That's right. The, the, I guess he was even more extreme than somebody like Rush Limbaugh of his day or even Alex Jones, uh, 20,000 black shirts in Atlanta alone and 20,000 German-Americans in the bun. I think one of the parallels of this time is, is in the 30s. A lot of people had the sense that capitalism was on the way out and that either fascism or, or some sort of communism was going to replace it. That's true. Uh, I think the United States, the balance of power here was considerably different than it was in Britain or France, say because uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was in the White House, and I think he and uh, uh, you almost have to consider Eleanor Roosevelt along with him represented a, a deep and genuine commitment to democracy and the ways in which the Roosevelt administration uh, empowered labor unions in this country, which hadn't really been done before, uh, were really quite remarkable. Uh, but there were a lot of Americans on the far right, some of them there partly for ethnic reasons, uh, German, German Americans and Italian Americans who were sympathetic to the fascist movements in their country, uh, you know, whites in the South who were afraid that in this New Deal era, uh, black Americans might get too uppity, have to be put in their places. Uh, you know, this country itself was divided, uh, and these enormous strikes you mentioned. Um, but I think the balance was was different than it was, say, in, in England or in France. Well, and F, you mentioned FDR's commitment to democracy. At the same time, he, he had advisors telling him that what was happening in Spain on the uh, Republican side was tantamount to mob rule, and he listened to that, and he refused to arm the Republicans. I think FDR, above all, was a political realist, and although I think he felt sympathetic to the Spanish Republic and certainly would have preferred that it had won the Civil War, he felt that he didn't have the political support here to actively push, which would have taken an act of Congress had it been done openly, to for selling arms to the Republic. He was a very shrewd reader of opinion polls, and he knew that even though there were many more Americans who backed the Spanish Republic than who backed General Franco, uh, most Americans had no opinion on the subject at all. Uh, and he decided essentially, I'm not going to push for direct uh, intervention. It would have required Congress changing the, the Neutrality Act uh, to be able to actually sell arms to Spain. He didn't push for that. Uh, in early 1939, as the war was coming to an end and Franco and his people were clearly going to win, Roosevelt told a cabinet meeting, we made a grave mistake in not selling arms to Spain. But by then it was too late. The war was lost. How much of the political pressure against arming the Republic was as a result of the kinds of things 
that were happening, say, in revolutionary Barcelona. You describe a society where many public services were suddenly free, such as the public transportation. Uh, there were new schools everywhere. You write that in, in Catalonia, workers took over 70% of the businesses and workers took over a Ford automobile factory, sent their own militia to the front and paid it out of confiscated Ford bank accounts. And much of uh, the area was running on cashless barter. Wasn't that incredibly threatening to capitalist liberals in the West? Well, I'm sure the Ford Motor Company was not happy about this. And the same thing happened in the General Motors plant uh, in, uh, in, in Barcelona also. Curiously, this widespread social revolution in northeastern Spain, which to me is, is one of the most fascinating aspects of this period, got relatively little news coverage in the United States. I think that what had much more impact in terms of creating public opinion among some people in the United States that we shouldn't aid the Spanish Republic in any way was that when the war broke out in July 1936, there was a tremendous amount of political, political violence against civilians on both sides. The best estimates are that uh, during the war and its immediate aftermath, the Franco's nationalists deliberately assassinated about 150,000 people, and that on the Republican side, uh, close to 50,000 people were assassinated who were actual or presumed Franco sympathizers. The difference, of course, was that on Franco's side, the assassination of labor leaders, uh, Republican local and municipal officials, and so on, was a matter of deliberate policy. On the Republican side, these tended to be killings by mobs who got out of control, and after about four months, the republic's government finally got the mobs under control, and those killings stopped. But they had received an enormous amount of publicity around the world, really as much or more as the killings of civilians by Franco's people did. And perhaps more importantly, in terms of political impact, among those murdered by these mobs in Republican Spain were nearly 7,000 members of the clergy, priests, monks, uh, a few bishops, and so on. And this was actually the largest massacre of Catholic clergy in modern times. This had a huge impact, and it meant that the, the Catholic Church in the United States, which was politically quite powerful, was dead set against any kind of uh, intervention in favor of the Republic. Was it reported at the time that some of those clergy were actually combatants? No, no, it really wasn't. I mean, that has been you know, proven by historians who've dug into things since then, and, you know, there's extraordinary eyewitness account, which I, I, I quote by a, a British volunteer for Franco named Peter Kemp, who describes a clergyman on the battlefield encouraging soldiers forward and, and leading a charge at one point himself. But in fact, most of the clergy who were murdered were not combatants. Let's talk about the, the volunteers. The one government that did decide to arm the republic was Stalin's in the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Comintern uh, organized the international militia. What was the Comintern? The Comintern was the, the organization through which uh, Stalin basically controlled communist parties in other countries. And it was very much a sort of top-down control. And uh, Stalin uh, had initially hoped that Britain and France, being much closer to Spain, 
would step in and sell arms to the Republic. And so for the first three or four months of the war, his support for the Republic was mainly rhetorical. When it became clear that Britain and France were not going to step in and help the Republic, he decided to do so. And I think his motives were twofold. One, because no superpower, whether it's the Soviet Union or the United States or anybody else, ever does anything out of the goodness of their heart. There are always political calculations involved. And for Stalin, I think it was the main calculation was that he knew he would be under threat from Hitler's Germany because Hitler had been making a lot of noises about expanding to the east and, you know, Germany needs living room and so forth. And, of course, to the east was the Soviet Union. And he didn't want Hitler to have another friendly regime uh, in Western Europe. The other thing that was going on, which loomed larger in Stalin's mind than I think it actually was in fact, was that he saw himself as being in uh, a pitched battle with his exiled uh, archenemy, uh, Leon Trotsky, for leadership of left-wing movements around the world. And if the Soviet Union didn't sell arms to Spain and encourage volunteers to go there and so forth, it, it would be at risk of, of losing some influence in that struggle. In fact, Trotsky's followers were outnumbered uh, and quite faction-ridden and relatively powerless almost everywhere. But, you know, Stalin had a strong streak of paranoia, and I think that was a, a motive for him. So starting in the fall of 1936, a couple months after the war started, uh, he began selling arms to the Spanish Republic and put out the word to communist parties all over the world to begin recruiting volunteers. And it's those forces that became the, the international brigades. And, and many of the first to sign up were writers, intellectuals, is that right? Uh, many were. Uh, in fact, there had been probably about close to four or 5,000 volunteers, mainly from Western Europe, uh, but a few from the United States, who had rushed to Spain before the Soviet Union did anything. And these tended to be people who were not communists, but from other groups on the left. Uh, sympathetic to the anarchists in Spain's northeast, and they were already fighting there. And it's, of course, one of those groups that, that George Orwell fought with uh, beginning when he arrived in Spain in, in late 1936. But the world's communist parties had a lot of people in them. They were an organized and disciplined force, and the international brigades that they raised uh, totaled a lot more than that early batch of volunteers. Probably international brigades estimated between about thirty-five and 40,000 men altogether. But by and large, we were not talking a professional military force, despite the organizational effort that was required to bring people there. You write about the early resistance as citizens who managed to arm themselves and columns leaving the cities without food <laughs> uh, right. or, or rifles even. Uh, yeah. This is uh, particularly in Spain's northeast, where these worker militias were very strong. This was uh, a major part of the early resistance to Franco, because most of the professional army officers had gone over to Franco's side. Uh, and of the volunteers who arrived from overseas, 
most of them were not professional military people either. Uh, certainly very few of those from the United States. From Western Europe, probably a larger percentage had had, had some military experience because, of course, almost everybody in Europe uh, who was older than 38 or 39 at that point had been in the First World War because uh, the armies were so huge at that time. So a number of, you know, British, French, and other volunteers had had military experience in World War One, but very few Americans. And you write, uh, can you tell uh, the story of, this I found very affecting in your book, of, of Joseph Seligman Jr., the, the first American to enter combat? Yeah, I was so uh, touched by this when I, when I discovered it. Joe Seligman was a 19-year-old student at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. And in the fall of 1936, one day in uh, December of that year, his mother, who lived in Louisville, Kentucky, called him up. The college phoned him and was told that he'd disappeared a week earlier and nobody knew where he'd gone. Uh, a little bit later, mailed by a friend after a deliberate delay, his parents got a letter saying, I've gone to Spain. Uh, I had to do it. I couldn't stand by and watch this conflict unfold without being a part of it. So 19 years old, he arrives in Spain uh, just in time for his 20th birthday, uh, gets there before the battalion of American volunteers that the U.S. Communist Party had organized uh, arrived, so he was assigned to the British battalion because they were English speakers. The British battalion was, like almost all the international volunteers, badly trained, badly equipped, thrown into battle because they were urgently needed. They were thrown into, into battle defending Madrid. And on his first day in combat, uh, Joe Seligman was fatally wounded and died sometime in the next week or two. We don't know just how long because there are no records in a hospital uh, near Madrid. And his family back in Kentucky was desperate. They were desperate when they heard he had gone. Uh, they tried to persuade him to come back. They contacted journalists they knew to uh, try to make contact with him. Uh, and then when they heard he was killed, uh, they were just uh, devastated. And then they tried to recover his body and learned from an American diplomat in Spain that they couldn't even do that because his body had been thrown in a mass grave because so many people had been killed in the battle for Madrid. I think it affected me when I learned about it because both my wife and one of my sons went to Swarthmore College and I've been there many, many times. Amazingly, Joe Seligman's sister is still alive in New York. I believe she's 96 years old. And uh, I interviewed her in the course of writing the book, and she gave me letters of his, some of them just uh, discovered quite recently. It was very moving to meet somebody from that same generation who, of course, remembered her brother very fondly and very well. He wrote home, a lot of good a diploma will do in a fascist era. Was I think that the kind of urgency that many people felt that, you know, the fate of the world is at stake here. And why should I stay home and, and finish college when the, the nature of life on this planet may be decided, if not by this war, by a larger world war of which this is the first battle. And I think they were right that this was the first battle of a larger world war to come. Many of the Americans who left uh, were, were college students who dropped out of school uh, from 
one college alone, the City College of New York, there were more than 50 students, faculty, alumni, or staff who went to Spain. That's incredible. And also, when they got to Spain, they were hearing things about, for instance, concentration camps that wouldn't be widely known back home for many years. Is that right? Well, certainly to the extent that they mixed with volunteers from Germany, and there were a lot of German political refugees, uh, leftist Germans, uh, who, who fought in Spain. Uh, some of these were folks who had been in the early concentration camps in Germany. Yeah, you're right, this, and this was not widely known in the West, or at least, you know, it may have been reported, but people didn't focus on it. They didn't see how enormous that network of concentration camps would eventually become. If you frame it as the first battle of, of the Second World War, uh, many years earlier than uh, Amer as Americans were taught it began, uh, you know, usually uh, our, our version of the war begins with Pearl Harbor or we right. they were viewed uh, with, with much suspicion. They were called uh, eventually premature anti-fascists. That's right. Because th these were Americans who were in uniform, who were being shot at and bombed by Nazi pilots four years before Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> so I think they were right to see the war as beginning then. When they got back to this country, it was a time when, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was riding high as head of the FBI, and they got uh, quite badly harassed. Many of them lost their passports, had them taken away uh, the moment they got off the ship in New York. And uh, over the years, if they had a job, their employer would get visited once or twice a year by the FBI and say, do you know you're employing somebody who fought in a communist army in Spain? Uh, interestingly, more than 400 of the returned American volunteers fought in the U.S. armed forces during World War II. About two dozen of those 400 were killed. How they fared in the U.S. military in World War II varied a good deal depending on who their commanding officer was. Many commanding officers, you know, shared the kind of prevalent suspicion of anybody who'd been in Spain. But some of the smarter ones realized, hey, here, I've got somebody with military experience, and that's something none of my other men have. What happened to the ones who were viewed suspiciously by their officers? They were kept uh, peeling potatoes or doing some, some work well behind the lines and uh, not with any glamour during World War II. One of the things you allude to is um, you're a member of the uh, Vietnam generation. When yeah. attitudes toward war or the idea of a just war, very different from this era. Um, how, how did you sort that out in your own mind as you were working on this book? Well, you know, I'm one of these people who I think I'm not a complete pacifist. I'm about a 90% pacifist in that I think 90% uh, of wars are not worth any sane person risking their lives in. And certainly that applies to Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, the various places where the U.S. is engaged around the world today. And for my generation, Vietnam was the big thing because uh, I graduated from college just before American combat troops got sent there. And all of us in that generation, the decision you had to make was, you know, we had a draft. Are you going to let yourself be drafted? Or are you going to do something to... Uh, make sure that won't happen. Is this war worth fighting in? <clears throat> and I did not think it was. 
But I think, as I look back on the Spanish Civil War, I admire the people who went there because I think that was a war that was worth fighting in. It was fought for for all the complexities and the difficulties and the you know nothing is ever completely clear cut. But boy, I think the world would be better off, and certainly the people of Spain would have been uh, far better off if uh, Franco had not won. Even with the story like Joe Seligman, didn't last a day. You know, right. I, I, I'm sure that his parents must have felt that he'd, he'd thrown his life away. And and certainly the the Republicans were not, you know, if you view a, a military force as having some kind of duty of care toward the soldiers who are sacrificing themselves, um, you know, it was not uh, mature enough to ensure, I guess, a minimum level of training. There, there's a tension here of encouraging a kind of romanticism toward conflict, particularly one that uh, young people might lose their lives in, and the, the justness of the cause. It's, it's a very dicey line to walk because I think every, every book about the Spanish Civil War has that tension at, at, at sort of at the center, including, including yours. Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls and Orwell's Homage to Catalonia took different angles on that. You know, Orwell wrote about sort of the terror on the streets and the leftist infighting. Hemingway took a much more, uh, I guess, romantic view. Can you talk about that, that tension? I mean, did you feel that as you were writing this, that there's a risk? Sure. Of, yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I, I would hate to, in any way, romanticize war, which is a, a, a pretty nasty business. And I've happily never been in one in my, myself, but I certainly have known people who have, and I've reported from conflict zones uh, as a journalist. And it's a nasty thing. Not only the business of getting uh, killed or wounded in war, but the conditions that you have to live under, you know, living in trenches, sleeping on the ground, being covered in lice, and in Spain, you know, the meat that the soldiers had to eat was mostly mule, you know, the descriptions of the food alone are, are horrible. So, in a sense, there was nothing romantic about that. And you're right that, you know, ideally, an army shouldn't send untrained soldiers into combat or under-equipped soldiers into combat, but sometimes they don't have that luxury. The battle that Joe Seligman was, was killed in was essentially a battle to prevent Franco's forces from surrounding Madrid, which they were on the verge of doing in early 1937. And had they surrounded Madrid, you know, Spain's uh, largest city by far and the historic capital, it would have been a disaster and it would have uh, hastened the end of the war. And the army simply didn't have the luxury of holding back uh, until there was time for more training. Not that they even had qualified instructors to do the training. So sometimes I think there are unavoidable choices that have to be made. And I would not like to be in that kind of position where you have to make them. Yeah. When you're talking about foreign volunteers, I wonder... Many people had political convictions. To what extent was there an element of, of simple thrill-seeking? or? Now, I'm sure that applied for some people. I think all soldiers going off to all wars often imagine themselves becoming heroes and imagine themselves killing people rather than getting killed themselves. Uh, and I'm sure for some of those who went, uh, you know, there were dreams of glory there. Show, show me a war where that's not so. <laughs> right. But I do think there was strong, strong political motivation 
You know, these were people who felt themselves to be fighting fascism, who felt themselves to be on the left politically uh, in one way or another. Some were members of the Communist Party, some were sympathizers to the party, some were, were not at all, but still felt themselves to be resisting a horrible force of fascism. Your uh, conclusion about what might have happened had the Democratic side won is a bit different than others that have appeared previously. You conclude that it's extremely unlikely, as some has argued, that the, the USSR could have controlled Republican Spain as a, some kind of puppet uh, without an occupation force. But you also say that it's unlikely that a Republican victory could have prevented the Second World War. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, let's do the second point first. I don't think a Republican victory would have prevented the Second World War because I think Hitler was still determined to uh, conquer the world. And he was always looking east. He was not, to begin with, or at least prior to the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, he was not very interested in Spain. His dreams were always expanding German power to the east, reaching the Balkan and Caspian oil fields, because Germany had an enormous industrial might, but imported most of its oil. And so that meant thinking about conquering or influencing, uh, having control over Eastern Europe, the Balkan oil fields, and uh, Russia for the, the Caspian oil fields or Soviet Union. So that was where he was always looking. And I think even had the Republic won the Spanish Civil War, sooner or later he would have attacked Russia, as, as he did. That was always his main target. Um, but I still think had the Republic won the Spanish Civil War, during World War II, Spain would have been at least a de facto supporter of the Allies rather than a de facto supporter of Nazi Germany, which they were. On the other question of whether uh, if the Republic had won the Spanish Civil War, some conservative uh, historians will tell you, well, it would have become a Soviet satellite because communist influence was very strong in that government. Uh, a number of the top Republican army commanders were communists. However, I think if you look historically, it's very hard for a superpower to maintain a satellite without having an occupation force. The countries of Eastern Europe uh, remained Soviet satellites for 40 years because the Red Army was on hand, and Moscow didn't hesitate to send in the Red Army when there were uprisings. East Germany, 1953, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968. Had the Red Army not been there, I don't think those countries would have stayed Soviet satellites for long. Similarly, although we tend not to use the word in describing them, most nations of Central America and the Caribbean were, in effect, American satellites uh, for much of the, of the 20th century. And the U.S. maintained them in that status by repeatedly sending in the Marines when uh, a regime took power that uh, we didn't like. So I think unless the Soviets had had you know, their own troops in Spain in substantial numbers, I don't think it would have been possible to maintain a Soviet satellite, you know, on the other side of Europe, uh, separated from Russia by a couple of thousand miles. Another sort of uh, question that you, you didn't address is, is what might have happened to some of those experiments in governance that were happening, or non-governance in the case of the anarchist uh, uh, controlled areas. Well, I think that... 
Spanish anarchism is a, is a peculiar thing. There are many ways in which it's very romantically attractive. You know, the idea that workers should own and control the factory that they work in, that uh, peasants uh, should, should own and control these large estates where they used to be powerless laborers, and that uh, waiters should control restaurants and so forth. All of this happened during that three or four months period. Well, actually longer, six or seven months when some version of this regime really was maintained. But there was also a lot of very impractical notions involved with Spanish anarchism. They believed in abolishing money as a means of exchange. Well, you can have a barter system if you're exchanging bread from the countryside or wheat from the countryside for simple manufactured goods from the city. But when you're making complex products that have to be assembled with parts from overseas, you need to use money. And I think it was a, an impossible dream to get rid of money, and also an impossible dream to entirely get rid of prisons, which is something they wanted to do. And indeed, in, in many towns and cities that anarchists controlled, they simply threw open the prison doors. Well, that can be fine as far as you know, nonviolent political prisoners are concerned, but it did put a lot of criminals on the streets. And I think, regretful as they are, we, we do need some kind of police and, and prison system. So there were a lot of impractical sides to it. That whole movement was essentially squashed by the Republican government by uh, nine or ten months into the war. Had the Republic won, I don't think anything like it would have come back to life in a big way. Northeastern Spain today actually does have the most extensive network of cooperatives in Western U in Europe, the Mondragon uh, Cooperative. But this is still not the dominant thing in the economy there. What's your sense of how this war is remembered outside of Spain and within it? Uh, my, my sense as a visitor was, uh, particularly as a foreigner, too touchy to talk about with any sort of casual acquaintance still. I think you're right. In Spain itself, it is too touchy to talk about unless you know where somebody stands. And the reason for that is even though the war ended uh, more than 75 years ago, Franco's regime, which it installed in power, lasted until Franco died in 1975, which is not so long ago. So there are still people walking the streets who were, you know, secret policemen and so forth in that, that regime. There was a remarkable event a couple of years ago when a man who had been a political prisoner as a student activist during the last days of Franco's regime was running in a marathon in Madrid a couple of years ago and saw that one of the other people running in the marathon was his secret police torturer from his days in prison. And so there are all these kinds of situations that every Spanish family, you know, has a father, an uncle, a grandfather, you know, who fought in the war or a grandmother who was raped or whatever during that period. And I've met a number of Spaniards who've told me, you know, I've got people on both sides uh, among my ancestors. Uh, and I think that's why, for example, there still is no big, good museum of the Spanish Civil War in Spain. There's a movement to try to start one in Barcelona, but uh, I think they're a long way from succeeding yet. In France and Britain, there are uh, a lot of people who are descendants of those who fought in the Spanish Civil War who uh, go back to Spain and have put up a few 
plaques and monuments and so forth, and there are uh, associations of, well, now it's the, the children uh, or grandchildren of the volunteers from those countries, as there is in the United States, too, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives in New York City. There are no actual brigade members left, but this is an organization that does some quite good uh, educational programming for uh, teachers and so forth about the Spanish Civil War and holds uh, uh, meetings each year and you know you can meet the children of people who fought uh, in the war there. I imagine there would be some controversy about where such a museum would be located and if it were in Barcelona there there may be concerns that it would reflect a, a Catalan view to the exclusion of other perspectives and there there's another aspect that you alluded to that was contemporaneous, uh, in which the sort of left-wing volunteers from overseas may have uh, fudged over, even in their own minds a bit, the, the Catalan and Basque movements yeah. and the yeah. conflict with Madrid and emphasize the ideological ones. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think Spain was a more fragmented country to begin with, regionally, than uh, many other places in Western Europe. Uh, because really for a long time, well before the Spanish Civil War, um, you know, going back in the 18th and 19th centuries, there had been stirrings in Catalonia in the northeast and in the Basque territory, which is in the far north, uh, bordering France, uh, stirrings, people wanting autonomy or independence. And both uh, for a long time, and it still applies today, these areas are the most prosperous and industrialized in Spain. Uh, plus, they speak languages other than Spanish. Catalan, although it's a, a Romance language, is not the same as Spanish. It's spoken differently. It's written differently. And the Basque language is not even related to the Romance languages. Mainly, I think the push comes from people feeling, you know, why should we be paying taxes to support other parts of the country where... Uh, uh, people are poor and, and chewing up disproportionately a large, larger part of our tax money. Um, and those movements are still there uh, today. And Catalonia is having a fight with the central government. Um, but this also was part of the conflict between the Spanish Republic and uh, uh, Franco's nationalists because the Republic was much friendlier towards the movement, not for entire separation, but for autonomy in these regions. Uh, Catalonia had the first its first regional parliament in modern times under the Republic. Um, the Basque territory actually got cut off by Franco's army from the rest of Spain, uh, regarded itself as sort of an independent country that was in alliance with the Republic fighting against Franco. So, yeah, that, that uh, regionalism or tribalism, as you say, uh, uh, is a very important factor there. Uh, but we opened by talking about some of the, if not parallels, uh, the reasons to remember uh, what happened in Spain and, and what lessons we can draw from it. Um, I don't know, were you in, uh, were you, you live in Berkeley, were you in Berkeley uh, in April for the, uh, the street fights? I was, I was, and, and felt very sad about it because I am not at all in favor of these people who dress in black and, and, you know, regard political disagreements as 
with Trump supporters is something that have to be settled with fists and baseball bats and so on. I think they give all of us progressives who feel differently uh, a black eye. And of course, they're just the sort of people that Fox News will pick up and splash on TV screens all over the country. There are not very many of them, but you know, the, the right-wing media does give them a tremendous amount of attention. Aren't they certainly the sort of people that would have volunteered or dropped out of school to go to Spain? Possibly. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a different thing to go off and risk your life in another country than it is to think, you know, I'm going to go down to the local park and have a fist fight with somebody I don't like. That is definitely true. And having covered a number of these things, um, there, there are definitely people that think they're involved in a war. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and there's a, there's some disturbing uh, aspects of, uh, well, at least tacit state support for some of the, the right-wing goons who are going around to, to beat up these people. You can't, you can't really compare it, you know, when they're, you know, mass rapes being encouraged by military officers when there are, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands of people in a city rounded up and assassinated because they belong to a labor union. I don't think uh, there's any comparison to what's happening here right now. They're certainly borrowing the iconography and some of the slogans, you know, no partisan, right. the red and black flags. We, we, we see that. Uh, and that's part of the reason I asked about the romanticism and the tension of, you know, resurrecting some of these I guess, the heroes of the left uh, from this era. You also see uh, some young volunteers going off to fight with uh, the YPG, the, the Kurdish Socialist Militia, uh, I guess, ISIS. What do you make of that? Well, there are a few of them. How many? I, I, don't, I doubt if it's even in the dozens at this point. I'm sure they're idealistic. Uh, to me, that whole war in Syria and neighboring countries is so much more complicated than Spain because there are so so many different sides. I guess if you have to pick uh, somebody to fight for, it would be uh, the Kurds. I don't know. To me, it, it, it feels a toxic mess I would rather stay away from. There, there's certainly no popular front to defend. Uh, no. The environment is just much, uh, I would say, even more dangerous than Spain was. Absolutely, because you've got, uh, you know, modern jets coming after you. You've got bombs carried by drones. Spain, in, in some ways, was one of the last of the old-fashioned wars where you could at least usually see the people you were shooting at, uh, you know, uh, or at least see where their positions were on the other side of a valley or something. Not to mention the complexity of a war where there are, you know, four or five different groups uh, fighting and, and sometimes changing patterns of alliances. Well, right. I mean, to the extent that war bears any resemblance, um, it's in the civilian terror campaigns. That's in many ways what war is now. Attacks that are never perhaps even properly attributed. I mean, Spain was unusual for its time in that there were as many deliberate civilian deaths, mostly by assassination, some by bombing, as there were military deaths. So where do you personally see the important and applicable lessons? Is it in the willingness to, to sort of set, risk your, your body and your life for a cause? Is it in the need for some kind of liberal left coalition uh, like you saw succeed in Spain before the coup? Where, where, where are the lessons that you draw? Well, 
I'm wary of drawing. I'm wary of drawing lessons that are too specific because it was a very different time. I guess what I feel most of all is that one should have a sense of urgency about what we're faced with today under Trump, that is parallel to what people felt in 1936 about what they were faced with with uh, the rise of fascism in, in Europe. I and I say that making clear that I don't think there's an equivalence between the two. I don't think Trump is Hitler, but uh, I do think that we're up against a kind of regime in this country that is like almost nothing we've seen before, a kind of uh, a carelessness, a careless disregard of the checks and balances that are built into the American Constitution, the three branches of government, a kind of casualness with which the president talks about mass destruction. You know, well, if you have nuclear weapons, why don't you use them? Uh, things like that. These are scary times. We have to take it really seriously. I don't think that means enlisting to fight militarily, but enlisting to fight in other ways, politically, organizationally, within popular movements, within the electoral system, which thankfully we still have, even though it doesn't function very well. Well, Adam, that seems like a good place to conclude. Um, let me thank you again for, uh, for your time, and I uh, really enjoyed the book. Well, thank you, Corey. Thanks, Adam. Thank you in advance for writing. Don't forget, delete my account at newsfromnowherepodcast.com. This is Corey. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye.